Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Nazi Loot and Soviet Spies, Ireland in the Summer of 63. This podcast looks at a recent chapter in our history, the summer of 1963. Now you might well think that the 1960s can't really be considered history, but I guarantee you by the end of the show you'll have changed your mind. To be honest, I was really shocked just how different Ireland was only 57 years ago. I'll be introducing you to lots of aspects of life at the time. So while we will eventually get to Nazi loot and Soviet spies, first we're going to take a look at lots of what might be described as the more day-to-day aspects of life, but is really fascinating. So it's things like how did people date before dating websites like Tinder and OkCupid were a thing. I want to keep breaks in today's show to an absolute minimum, so I'm going to get all the housekeeping out of the way now. It's pretty short today, just three quick announcements. Firstly, just an update on schedules. There's going to be no show next week. Then I'll have a one-off episode on the 17th. I'm not exactly sure on what that's going to be on. If you have any ideas, let me know. Then Partisans, that's the series on Irish stories from the Spanish Civil War, returns on the 24th of February. The second announcement is about a live show that's coming up this week. So I'm doing a live show in Cork in the Kino on Washington Street next Thursday. That's February the 6th, 2020. You can get tickets now at uticket.ie. That's spelled U, the letter T-I-C-K-E-T dot I-E. That's coming up this Thursday on Washington Street in Cork. And finally, last but not least, I have a really cool new way for you to support the show. Just check out the pins and badges at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. They're lovely metal and enamel badges and they depict some of the most famous people in Irish history. You'll know them all, but some of them have been covered in the show, so they go all the way back to Brian Baru. But there's also people like the revolutionary Countess Markovich and the famous pirate Grace O'Malley. You'll love them and as I say, it's a great way to support the show. So check them out at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now to 1963. I'm going to begin today's show by explaining where the idea for this episode came about because until very recently I wouldn't have even considered doing an episode on the 1960s. It feels a bit too contemporary in a way. 
That changed recently, though, when I was staying in my sister Ruth's house. Now, those of you who have listened to the episode Letters from Dakota will remember Ruth, who narrated our granddad's letters in that show. Anyway, she had found a collection of old newspapers from July 1963 in her house. And once I read the first headline I saw, I was totally gripped. This headline proclaimed, Man who knew too much disappears, with a sensational byline, had secret of 10 million of Nazi loot. Instantaneously, I was hooked and set about what became a journey back to that summer of 1963. As I leafed through the papers, there were stories of Soviet spies, but also intriguing details of the banalities of Irish life that made me realise just how much Ireland has changed. To start our journey back, though, to the summer of 1963, I want to give you a few details just about life, because Ireland in the 1960s is a pretty strange place. So in 1963, the island, like it is today, was partitioned. The 26 counties in the west and south formed the Republic of Ireland, while the northeastern six counties of Northern Ireland were part of the United Kingdom. The population of the 26 counties was just 2.8 million people, while an additional 1.4 million people lived in the six counties of Northern Ireland. Since then, the overall population has nearly doubled. In general, Ireland in the 1960s seemed to be finally emerging from decades of recession. The 1950s had been a really cruel time, what many people called a lost decade. The economy had been stagnant in dire straits and emigration crippled the island. 500,000 people had left Ireland between 1945 and 1960, making it one of the worst periods since the Great Hunger. However, that said, by 1963, there was hope of a kind. In that summer, Time magazine had the Taoiseach, or Prime Minister of Ireland, Sean Lamas, on its front cover and proclaimed him, and I quote, the man who has done most to end his country's long sleep. This referred to Lamas's policy of ending economic protectionism, which seemed to be paying dividends at the time. Yet, Ireland did have one foot firmly rooted in the past. A programme of electrification was underway, but there were still some towns and villages in the West that had not yet been connected to the grid. The most common method of international travel remained the boat, and on the front page of one of the newspapers my sister found was an advert for the Holland America Line, which serviced New York, Galway, Cove outside Cork, Southampton in England, the Harve in France, Rotterdam in Holland, before finally reaching Bremerhaven in Germany. Now, if you wanted to find out more, there was no web address, obviously. Instead, a phone number in Dublin you could ring, along with an all-important physical address you could write a letter to. Now, that physical postal address was very important because in 1963, the telephone network still had not penetrated many parts of rural Ireland. Although they only accounted for about a third of the population, 70% of all telephones were in Ireland's 10 largest towns and cities. While development had a long way to go, Irish society remained extremely conservative and unchanging. Women were very much second-class citizens. Only three of the 144 members of Parliament were women. The marriage bar, which required women to retire from the civil service when they were married, remained in effect. Divorce was banned, while abortion and homosexuality were criminal offences. The Catholic Church was at the zenith of its power. 95% of the population declared themselves Roman Catholic in the census of 1961, the highest rate ever recorded. For me, what was an even more incredible statistic was the fact that 1% of the entire population in the Republic were either priests, monks or nuns. 
Now hopefully this has given you some sense of what Ireland looked like in 1963 because now we're going to take a look at some of the stories making the news and they're really fascinating. So just to explain to you, I'm sitting here with all the newspapers my sister found so you will hear them rustling in the background as I read the stories. Now well, as I say, we will get to stories about Nazi loot and Soviet spies. There was one thing that struck me about Ireland in that summer of 1963 And that's the simplicity, or even I suppose you might say a a naivety about life at the time. For example, one newspaper had on its front page the following story. Now this is the evening press, and this story on its front page says £20 theft from Fairview House. Fairview is just outside Dublin, city centre. Property to the total value of nearly £20 was stolen from the home of Mr John MacArthur, 39 Cadigan Road, Fairview, between Sunday and yesterday. Thieves gained entry to the house by forcing a window leading to the dining room while the owner was away. Raiders took a record player, two long playing records, a pair of binoculars and an electric razor. Now it's hard to put a contemporary value on £20, but the Central Statistics Office website would put this at around four or €500 today. But looking at it from 2020, the fact that a newspaper would have put a story like this on its front page seems strange. Today we have reports of really horrific murders related to drugs gangs, so this I think kind of makes Ireland seem a little innocent. This is reinforced by a letter in another newspaper, The Evening Herald, which came out on July the 11th, 1963. Now this letter is titled dancing age. Sir, in a recent report of a carnival all-night dance, I was shocked to see a reference to girls present being from 15 to 30 years of age. By law, the minimum age for attendance at dances is 18 years. Signed, Veritas, Ross Cray. Again, today this seems very innocent. In newspapers in Ireland in 2020, People are talking about teenagers, young teenagers even, having cocaine addictions. So the idea that people are outraged that a 15-year-old might attend a dance seems, I suppose, to reflect a more simplistic time. However, this is in a way deceptive. And as I continued reading, a country with major problems emerged from these newspapers. One thing I couldn't help but notice was the huge number of road accidents. The Evening Herald on July the 9th, for example, a Dublin newspaper again, which focuses on news obviously from the capital, had two stories about road accidents. This is no surprise though. In 1963, there were 335 fatal accidents in Ireland. This was an extraordinarily high figure, given there was only about 380,000 vehicles on roads in Ireland. In 2019, there was only 148 deaths in a country that now has about 2.7 million vehicles. You might wonder, why were people in the 1960s such bad drivers? Well, there's actually an article in the Evening Herald on July the 11th, which answers this. And its headline is actually a question, which asks, driving tests on the way, followed by a question mark. The report continues, driving tests may be introduced in the Republic early next year, and the Department of Local Government is already seeking driving testers in an advertisement published today. It's understood that only a small number of testers are wanted immediately. The department has limited the age of candidates to between 28 and 45 years of age and is offering salaries ranging from £720 to £810. This goes a long way to explain why there were so many road accidents. Basically, if you wanted to drive a car, you could essentially sit in one and drive it without taking a a, a physical test. I think you had to get a license from the guards, but no one would ever test were you actually able to drive. Now, while road deaths knocked the sheen off the idea that society was safer, there were even darker stories that challenged the idea that these were, I suppose, what you might call the good old days. 
The one story that really highlighted this for me is very small, it's almost missable, and it has the headline, Children Order. Justice A. Rochford, a Drogheda court, granted Inspector T. McCormack of the ISPCC, that's the Irish Society for Protection of Cruelty Against Children, granted him an application for the committal to an industrial school on the grounds of improper guardianship of two children of, I'm not going to read out the name just in case these people are still alive. Inspector McCormack said that the two little girls were being sent to Mount Carmel in Moat, County West Mead. Now that story, on face value I suppose, seems innocuous enough. However, the children in question were being sent to a notorious institution. It was an industrial school where the children there were horrifically abused and actually in Moat, County West Mead, they were actually subjected to trials for vaccinations. What was happening in places like that only fully really emerged in the 1990s, but it's pretty harrowing to think what lay ahead for those two children. Now, while Ireland has changed so much since 1963, one of the most fundamental changes is the internet and how it's subsequently, in the last, say, 10 years at least anyway, weaved its way into almost every aspect of our lives. It's changed communication, entertainment, all the way down to business. On opening these newspapers, though, in 1963, I was immediately struck that they kind of performed the same role so many websites do today. Several pages are taken up by what's called classified adverts, with people looking for everything from staff to accommodation, all the way down to, I suppose, what you might call a 1963 version of the dating app Tinder. So now I'm going to open up the last four pages of the Evening Press newspaper and look at its classified ads, just to give you a sense of what's there, because it's pretty startling, actually. So just looking through this, there's houses to let. Uh, For example, in Dublin, you can rent a house uh, for £6, 10 shillings a week. Given the country's in a housing crisis at the moment, that seems so, so low. Um, But if we move on, there's actually a very, very interesting section in this, and it's called miscellaneous. So some of them are just things like swimming lessons. But if you go down, then there's one titled Girl, and it says, Girl, 25, wishes companion for holidays, first two weeks in September, and then gives a PO box you can write to. I don't think anyone in their right mind today would advertise to go on holidays with a complete stranger. I don't know, maybe they do, but... Somehow, I don't think uh, most people would do that. Then if you go down, though, there's even more interesting ones. And it says, uh, massage for gents, full or partial, male nurse, gives a phone number, tells you to ring after seven for appointments only. Now, what this probably almost certainly is, in fact, is a male sex worker. But what's really interesting is that this is a very well-known newspaper, the Evening Press. And the fact that a male sex worker would advertise in it kind of surprised me, given that both sex work and homosexuality actually were illegal at the time. Finally, then, if you go down in these classifieds, I suppose what was one of the the most interesting parts is the is the dating aspect of it, and there's so it shows you how much things have changed. So these are under a title called matrimonial, and then the first one is man thirty five with three thousand five hundred pounds of capital seeks girl between twenty and thirty five with farm of her own, and then it gives a pure box that this woman can write to. The last one though is uh, the one that surprised me most. Uh, they say romance is uh, not dead, it was certainly dead in this case. It says, respectable man, 35, wishes to meet girl, willing to invest as partner for future. Small sum in boarding house and cafe trade. Viewed to above, and viewed to above is marriage, but it's uh, clearly uh, going to be a business arrangement. No talk of uh, love there. 
Next, I'm going to change tack, but it is worth just noting one other thing on this page of the newspaper that I'm looking at now, and that's actually uh, the TV guide for the time. It just gives you a sense of just how television was only in its infancy in 1963. So in Ireland, in 1963, there was only three channels you could watch. Um, they were called Telefish Aaron, that's RTE or the Irish Channel. Then there's the BBC, and then there's UTV, which is Ulster Television. But these channels are only on for a couple of hours a day, so they all started around five, half five in the evening, and they run then until about 11 o'clock at night. Um, and they, there is actually, sorry, I just see there's a fourth channel that says Welsh ITV, and that's on for about, again, f- five hours, and um, there's a couple of Welsh programmes on that. But just the idea that you'd only have uh, three or four channels um, to watch and they're only on for, as I say, six hours a day. Such a change from today where you've like 24-7 news and channels on all the time. Now, next, I want to move on to, I suppose, what you might call were the main stories. And these are the really juicy topics of Soviet spies and Nazi gold because they're really great stories. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, day-to-day life was very different. International politics in 1963 was the aspect of life, I think, that maybe surprised me most. While documentary channels today are dominated by programmes about Hitler and the Nazis, it's so easy to forget that in the 1960s, this was a very real lived experience for many of the population. and I don't think they would have really seen it as history in the way we do. The Second World War and the defeat of Nazis had, after all, only taken place 18 years earlier. This means that most adults alive in 1963 would have had strong memories of the Third Reich. It had had a major impact on life in Ireland and even though the Republic had remained neutral in the war, over 40,000 Irish people had fought in the British Army while the second largest city on the island, Belfast, had been heavily bombed by the Luftwaffe during the Blitz. And across the island, rationing had seriously affected life. In fact, rationing hadn't been formally ended until December 1951. This different and very real connection to the horrors of the Second World War was brought home to me, though, by one story. And this was, I suppose, what you might say, the most sensational, bizarre and in a way unbelievable story that was in the newspapers that my sister found. This was the main story on the, in the Evening Herald on July the 11th. And this is the story that I mentioned earlier in the show. So the headline is, Man Who Knew Too Much Vanishes. The byline is, 
has secret of 10 million in Nazi loot. And then the story starts. A former SS man who claimed to know the whereabouts of Nazi loot were 10 million pounds has mysteriously vanished. I, and this is the person writing the article who's a man called Lord Kilbracken, I'll come back to him, was put in contact with him in Offenburg last night. I am wondering now if he was a man who knew too much. This could have led to his disappearance. Peter Fleig, that's his assumed name, has been a wanted man for 15 years. Interpol and the French police would both like to interview him. Now, this type of story is what most historians would stay well clear of today, and for very good reason. Most reports like this are generally conspiracy theories or hoaxes. However, in 1963, the attitude was somewhat different. This was all happening just less than two decades after the end of the war, and it was widely known that the Nazis had, in fact, stolen large amounts of wealth. This story also had a pretty respectable source. I mentioned him there. It's a guy called Lord Kilbracken. He was actually a member of the House of Lords who lived in Ireland. He had in fact met this Peter Fleig at the centre of the story. And when I looked into it, I suppose you might say there's an element of truth to this. So in 1948, this Peter Fleig, whose real name was actually Walter Kerner, had been arrested trying to enter Corsica. He initially claimed he was a Czech businessman, but when authorities discovered the trademark SS tattoo, which was underneath his left armpit, the truth about who he was and why he was trying to enter this French island of Corsica emerged. So Kerner had been a member of the SS in the Second World War and claimed he was one of a group of Nazis who had hid a large cache of gold and other valuables which had been stolen in North Africa in 1943. Now, in 1963, this Lord Kilbracken launched his own search, but this ultimately would come to nothing, not least because, as the story says, the SS man Kerner had vanished. Now, this story has repeatedly surfaced over the last five decades, although it's now increasingly relegated to the realms of a conspiracy theory. No gold has ever been found. But in the years after the Second World War, like, say, in the early 60s, reports like this were treated very seriously. In fact, the French government in this case even launched an official search. What I found interesting is not so much the story itself. As I said, historians should always be wary of reports like this, and today at least, they certainly obscure the real history of the Second World War. However, reactions to it in the 1960s are more interesting. The war, as I said, and indeed the Nazis were fresh in the minds of many. It seemed far more plausible to them that there might be gold hidden in Corsica, and I think this tells us a lot about attitudes at the time. Now, while this story might seem like the stuff of novels rather than newspapers, the final topic of the podcast from that summer of 1963 seems equally hard to fathom. They have the feel of a James Bond plot to them, but they were very real. So in the early 1960s, the Cold War between the USA and the Soviet Union was in its most intense phase, and the world was gripped by spy mania. Both the USA and the Soviet Union regularly accused each other of espionage and frequently outed spies. Now, to give you a sense of this, I have the Evening Herald on July the 9th, 1963 in front of me, and the story I'm looking at reads, Not in red cell, says Martelli. Dr Giuseppe Martelli, the 39-year-old Italian physicist, who was accused of being ready to act as a spy for Russia, denied at the Old Bailey today that he had been a member of a communist cell of scientists in the Italian Alps in 1950. Martelli, who has worked at the Atomic Energy Authority's laboratory, at Cullham, Oxfordshire, has pleaded not guilty to nine charges under the Official Secrets Act. This story, as the report has outlined, relates to the trial of an Italian called Giuseppe Martelli in the Old Bailey in London. Ultimately, Martelli, in this case, was found not guilty, but his case was just actually one of dozens of similar stories that year. The Irish press, just a few days later, on July the 17th, carried two other stories that related to spies. 
It's probably worth bearing in mind just how widespread this was. Just a few months earlier, the British journalist and MI6 agent Kim Philby had been outed as a Soviet agent. He was actually the last of what was known as the Cambridge Aspiring, which had seen five senior figures in British life uncovered as Soviet agents. I guess this just highlights how prevalent this cloak and dagger war was at the time. I think in a way that would be very difficult for us to relate to. It's also worth bearing in mind that espionage was ultimately just a small part of this wider conflict between the two superpowers, the US and the USSR, that dominated life at the time, even in Ireland. While it was called the Cold War because there was no direct conflict, in the early 60s it did seem like a direct and open war between the USA and the USSR was just inevitable. Only a few months before the summer of 1963, the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis had brought the world to the brink of a nuclear war. It had seemed only hours away at the time. This would have been a war that would have cost tens of millions of lives and threatened the very future of human survival. And obviously for people in Ireland, that would have dominated their lives too. Now things had eased by the summer of 1963, but everyone was focused on very important talks that were underway in Moscow at the time to try and de-escalate the tensions that had led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Indeed, one of the lead stories in the Irish press on July the 17th, 1963, highlights this. This story has the headline, Nuclear Test Ban Talks Going Well, and it continues... The nuclear test ban talks continued in Moscow yesterday in a friendly atmosphere, a three-power communique said last night. A further meeting is planned for today. Western observers believe the talks had been moving forward smoothly and nothing has yet occurred to dash the hopes of an agreement. Yesterday, talks lasted three hours and the chief British and US delegates were smiling when they drove off after the session, while Mr Zorin, Soviet Deputy Foreign Minister, asked if the talks were going well, said... In my opinion, yes. While this is increasingly forgotten today, for people in 1963, these talks were hugely important. Indeed, a couple of months later, the limited nuclear test ban treaty, which curbed the testing of nuclear weapons, was agreed between the US, the UK and the USSR. And this reflected a move away from what had seemed like an inevitable and imminent war. While Ireland was gripped by these events for obvious reasons, The country did have a heightened interest in international affairs that summer. In June, the US President and the first of Irish Catholic descent, John F. Kennedy, had visited Ireland for four days and the country had been gripped by a frenzy. Indeed, a picture of JFK had joined the image of the Pope that was hung in many houses. The newspapers my sister Ruth found dated to about a month after that visit, but even then the letters pages were still debating aspects of the visit. To finish the podcast on a bit of a humorous note, we have a final story from a meeting of Letterkenny Urban Council in County Donegal about JFK and they were already planning for his next visit. So the headline is Invitation to K and it reads Letterkenny Urban Council is to extend an invitation to President Kennedy to come to Donegal when he next visits Ireland. The chairman said the president and the American people would be assured that in Donegal he would get a greater welcome than anywhere else in the country. Of course, JFK would never guess to take up this offer or visit Ireland again. A few months afterwards, in November 1963, he was assassinated in Dallas. So on that note, I'm going to end this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did making it, and it gives you some sense of what was a recent chapter in our history. While it was really great to delve into a period I don't get to focus on, in the coming weeks I will be heading back further into the past to more familiar ground. As I said at the start, there won't be an episode next week. I have to have a small operation which will put me out of action for a couple of days. I'll be back though the following week with a standalone show before getting back to Partisans at the end of the month. If you have any ideas 
what that standalone show should be on, get in touch on Twitter. You can find me there at Irish History and let me know what you want that show to be about. Until next time, Sloan. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.